As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. News that you don't know, but news that you should know. Then I sit down with professor and historian Elizabeth Hinton to discuss her new book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. I learned a ton, and this is the work I do, and I still didn't know this stuff. You should learn it too. Now, my advice for this week is actually just an I love you. My niece and nephew, Sayla and Isaac, are faithful listeners uh, of the pod, and I just want to say I love you. I love you, Sayla. I love you, Isaac. I love you, Teray. Teray's my sister. Uh, and to just tell you to, you know, tell the people you love, you love them. Tell them you love them in your most public way possible. We got to just tell the people we love them. Love y'all. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Instagram and the Twitter at Diara Ballinger. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Sway. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay. I'm on Twitter at at D-E-R-A-Y. I don't normally say it like that. Do I? I don't know why I like forgot it today. Okay. And this is DeRay at D-A- at, at, I don't know. I had a fine day, everybody. Every day today's fine. Why am I losing it? Uh, and this is DeRay at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Lots to talk about in the political space, obviously, as usual. But, you know, let's take it to the sports space, tennis in particular, where our sister girl, Naomi Osaka, basically told the French Open, no, not today. <laughs> So we've seen a lot of this all over. But I think it's been an interesting thing, right? Because I think even from like, you know, Serena had an interesting perspective in terms of like, you know, I'm going to talk to the press, but I know the press don't play tennis. So I don't really care what they have to say about me. And that's how I handle the situation. Where Naomi, you know, is not new to the game, obviously. Like she's now so accomplished and so impressive and so excellent. But really saying, I'm not going to speak to the press because it doesn't serve me um, and my self-care and my mental health. And so I'm not going to do it. Um, So I think it's just been an interesting discussion as we talk about, I think it is still like Mental Health Awareness Month, right? I think it is. Or it was last month. I mean, it should be every month. We Every month we should be <laughs> thinking about our, 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 our mental health. But just raising it up on the pod, because I think it just is such an, an interesting perspective. You know, is it required of these folks that are in sports to speak to the press, to open themselves up to the press? Can that be a form of harm? And, you know, what, it, what is that going to look like moving forward in terms of other folks that are going to take a stand against uh, speaking to the press? I mean, it's just been wild to see the press and so many people, in particular white people, you know, believe that they have a right to mm-hmm. all the time in her day, right? The right to ask her whatever they want, to bother her whenever, uh, to mess with her own self-care routine. Meanwhile, she's playing the most amazing tennis of anybody in the world. And it's like, this is sports, right? This is a game. This is tennis. She's excellent. Like, let her play the game. Like, why Why is it that all of these other random things are being added on to that? 
um, to cause her stress when she's clearly indicated that that's not something that she currently has time for right now. And clearly she's spending her time on what she should be, which is the game, right? And, and focusing and training and being the best in the world. Um, and it's a shame to see how that wasn't good enough, right? How it had to be all of that and more. And she had to endure all of this badgering by the press and she had to endure um, you know, it's just, it's wild to see. And I think, you know, we're just in a time now, I think after the pandemic and everything where I think people are just like tired of this. I don't think it's just uh, Naomi Osaka. Like, I think we're seeing this in, in general around the press and around how black women in particular have been treated by the press and by uh, sort of the broader society and all of these expectations being placed that are unfair, are burdensome and stress people out for no reason. So uh, I'm hopeful that this can spark some more reflection and that ultimately that the sport can do the work that it needs to do to deserve Naomi Osaka's presence. I will say too, one of the things that I uh, that I thought was just incredible, you know, when God just like tees up the story for everybody to highlight the the hypocrisy is that Federer withdrew from the French Open and he essentially cited the need to rest. He did not have an injury. Like it wasn't like he got hurt all of a sudden in the middle of a of one of the rounds. He didn't fall. But he's like, you know what? You know, after looking at uh, the year that he had, he had two knee surgeries and a year of rehabilitation. He's like, I don't want to push myself too hard. He he leaves and everybody's chill. She's just like, I am not coming to the press things. And people are literally ready to take her out. It was amazing and heartening to see the number of black athletes who stood behind her from Lewis Hamilton. Then you see people like Will Smith, like you see Serena, like you see people just support her. Like she gets to choose what she does here. And like Sam said, her, she showed up fully on the court. It wasn't like she half played. She was like, I'm there. I don't know if I need to discuss it immediately after every single time. The other thing that I thought was, uh, was a great brand moment was sweet green is one of her endorsers. And people asked sweet green after she did this, were they going to drop her? Because you know, the whole premise is that she, you know, is an athlete and a star and they said she stands up for what she believes in. That's back to our core values. And it's like, I actually just love that, especially because this was such a basic thing. She's like, my mental health. She didn't want to surprise you. She didn't like, she didn't even make it a PR moment by just not coming to the press event that day. She gave you a heads up. This is why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with the consequence. And they were still like, not enough. We want more. For me, this is all about like redefining power dynamics, right? And So, yep, her mental health and whether or not, you know, the interviews with the press were putting her in the best situation to be able to play her best game. But first of all, I think that there is a big question around the role of the press these days, given social media. Before, the only way that fans got to know an athlete was through the articles and stuff that came out from the standard press, right? That's not true anymore. People, you know, people know Naomi because they follow her on Instagram or on Twitter or, you know, she has her own thing. And so the role of the press in in making or breaking an athlete, I think, is in question. And, and I think that that is one problem, right? That this institution, which was super relevant, may not be as relevant as it was. And I think that that is a complete and total challenge to the power dynamic. The other like redefinition of power for me was really about this fact that like, who needs who? Does the tournament need her or does she need the tournament? Because she done showed y'all she don't need this tournament, frankly. 
And if I had a dollar for all of the pieces that I've seen that are like, oh, the French Open is less interesting to watch. Because this is the thing, right? Like, she is the star. She's the one who is bringing new people to the sport, engaging folks, you know, longtime fans in new and exciting ways. And I think these people made a big mistake. The people at Roland Garros said, well, you don't want to do it. We're going to fine you because it's, you know, it's the trope about owning black bodies and owning black athletes and owning control over how this stuff goes. And she was like, yeah, $15,000. Cool. No problem. I'll pay the fine. And I'll work with you to help figure out how to make sure that this doesn't happen again for other people. Oh, and boom, it backfired on them. Right. And people are like, what are you doing? French open people like what in the world? If we're not protecting athletes, if we're not ensuring that our stars can play and want to play you know, then what are you doing? And so I think that this is going to open a bunch of questions. I'm excited that she gets to call the question in ways that Serena wasn't able to, or John McEnroe came out and said, look, Bjorn Borg, you all ran him out of tennis on this BS, right? We shouldn't let this happen again. And so I think this is a really important moment in tennis and in and in athletics, right? Like, And shout out to all, not just Naomi, right? Marshawn Lynch, I'm just here because... I don't want to get in trouble, right? All the, we, like, you know, this is a question, I think an open question around the press and athletics and what athletes must tolerate. Y'all, my news is from the New York Times and it covers some new developments, actually the new development with National Black Theater in Harlem. So if you do not know the National Black Theater, please get familiar. I'm lucky enough to know it and have been exposed to it. Shade Lithkoth, who is the current CEO, is a dear sister friend of mine and just so incredibly talented. I don't know if I know anyone who cares more deeply about community, artistic expression, and Black liberation than my girl Shade. So, so exciting to see what's going to happen with National Black Theater, but essentially it's going to be rebuilt. Um, It's also going to include kind of 21 stories of apartments and retail space, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, kind of transforming into what will be, you know, even more so a pinnacle um, in a sense, you know, in a portal within Harlem um, that is, is so deeply needed. So I just, I wanted to bring this to the pod Um, Just because, one, this has been a place that has been so restorative and therapeutic and inspiring to me. Um, The last thing I saw at National Black Theater before COVID was actually The Peculiar Patriot, which is a one-woman show written and directed by Lisa Jesse Peterson, who you should also get to know if you do not know her body of work because it is incredible. And as far as Black theaters go, you know, we do not have many of them particularly those that were started and founded by black women. And so National Black Theater was actually founded by Sade's mother, Dr. Barbara Ann Teer, 50 years ago in 1968. And Dr. Teer was very much central to the black arts movement and the, the black liberation movement in Harlem. And National Black Theater has had folks come through it like Ruby D, Ozzie Davis, Nina Simone, Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, just to name a few. So really looking forward to, you know, what's to come and what will be an incredible, beautiful space, but also just wanted to highlight another important black cultural institution for y'all to get to know, support, lift up, 
etc. So check it out, National Black Theater, y'all. What was super exciting to me about this um, is kind of the redefinition of how the arts gets funded. And so this is, at least from my reading of the article, and uh, an attempt to change the paradigm where in order to do your art, you are dependent upon philanthropic contributions. This is kind of a FUBU move, right? We gonna buy some real estate, build a building, have some apartments and some stores and generate our own revenue so that that finances the art. And I think that that is a really interesting and groundbreaking approach And I'm excited and hope that the development actually provides enough revenue to support the work of the theater at, you know, its highest level. This is some Black empowerment stuff that I love. And I love the story, too, because basically Dr. Tier bought this whole block. She bought the block back in the day when people were like, why why are you doing that? Um, But as Sade said... She said that her for, for Dr. Tear, she saw it as the next piece of this temple to black liberation, which is ownership. Ownership would allow the real estate to subsidize the art to your point, Kaya, which was a model that would disrupt the standard practice of nonprofit theater funding. So my news is about a new report that was just released by the AFL-CIO. Now, the AFL-CIO has at least 13 affiliate unions that represent law enforcement. Uh, And this report is actually their public safety blueprint for change. Um, And this is newsworthy because the AFL-CIO has so much power and influence within the broader labor movement um, and is sort of this constellation of unions that includes police unions. Uh, And so, you know, organizers have been spending a lot of time trying to get the AFL-CIO to come out in favor of holding police unions accountable, addressing some of the issues that we've talked about frequently on the pod, uh, the ways in which police unions use uh, police union contracts and their lobbying and political influence uh, to push for policies that make it difficult to hold the police accountable, uh, that allow officers who commit misconduct, who kill people to uh, avoid any type of consequence for that. Uh, And so this report is sort of their effort after they convene a task force on racial equity um, to come out with a position, sort of a statement of where the AFL-CIO stands on this, what their sort of path forward is going to be in the the context of policing. Uh, And so what's notable about this is they essentially endorse a model that is uh, empowering police unions to hold their own members accountable uh, through a program that they call U-LEADS. This is the first time that I've heard of this ULEADS program. Uh, But essentially, this is calling for police unions to develop a set of internal standards to hold their own members accountable and to enforce those standards. And that is sort of how police accountability will happen, according to this blueprint. Now, suffice to say, the existing system is one in which the police unions already write many of the rules and the standards in the context of these police union contracts, uh, and those standards are not written in a way that even permits officers to be held accountable uh, and that destroys records of misconduct and does a host of other uh, really problematic things. Um, so wanted to bring this to the pod uh, because I know, you know politically these types of statements matter. The AFL-CIO has a lot of political influence, 
Um, most recently, they were involved in lobbying heavily for legislation that would have enabled police to unionize in every state, including uh, states that they currently don't have police unions in, like North Carolina. This is sort of one of their, their position statement. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting about this blueprint is while they don't call for cutting police funding or sort of changing or reducing the number of officers on the police force. They do call for alternatives to the police, like mental health providers responding to certain calls, alternatives to uh, issues like uh, domestic disturbances and other uh, issues. So it's sort of a mixed bag what they've come out with, but on the thing that really matters a lot that they have a lot of influence on in the context of the police union conversation, they have solidly gone with uh, continuing to empower the police unions to police themselves. Um, which is sad to see. I will say, uh, you know, I remember CNN, if you remember the first coverage of this, CNN reported like groundbreaking report on police unions coming out. And I was like, um, uh, let's see what the AFL-CIO is going to do. There are three things that stand out to me about this. The first is that people had believed that the AFL-CIO was going to distance themselves from police unions. It was gonna did None of that happened, literally. they This report is no distancing. If anything, this is a very firm embrace. And it's an embrace saying, hey, I hope you like just do all this stuff that we know is not going to change anything anyway. You're like, well, that's interesting. The second thing is like the one thing they could do would, would be to say that the police unions have a protection in the discipline process that is unheard of in any of the other unions. They don't call that out. They do the same old things like, you know, you should hire better. You should train differently. We've been there. To, you should have more community conversations. Been there, done that. And the third thing is I think people forget that the AFL-CIO is big in a lot of places. I mean, almost every place where there's unions. So they represent a whole host of public sector workers. So in places like Virginia, uh, the police are going to get the power to unionize or they got the power to unionize in May of this year almost exclusively because they're AFL-CIO members because AFL-CIO led the conversation around public bargaining. They are their members, and it is hard for us to disentangle them politically from being captured under the AFL-CIO. So, uh, you know, the AFL-CIO gets no brownie points for this. This is a sham proposal uh, and won't do anything. If anything, it might even allow people to think more favorably about police unions, though I don't think that's going to happen. You know, when we poll consistently, even people who don't really understand police unions are don't think they're a good thing. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, 
shrimp and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. My news this week comes from ESPN, and it is about the NFL halting race norming um, in the review of black claims in the $1 billion concussion settlement. So if you've been following football for the last how many ever years, you know that there's been a lot of conversation about, and frankly, scientific evidence that playing football causes significant brain injury over time. There are lots of football players who have suffered from concussions and then a whole bunch of other brain-related injuries. And the NFL a couple of years ago, I think in 2013, created a settlement fund of $1 billion for players who could demonstrate that they had suffered um, brain injuries as a result of their football playing. Well, see, the problem is that the way to demonstrate that you have um, suffered injuries is to show that your cognitive functioning is less now than it was before. But part of the whole dealio is that in the 90s, medicine created some standards around cognition, which effectively assumed that black players started out with lower cognitive functioning than other players. And so it's then harder to show the deficit and be eligible to take part in the in the billion dollar settlement. So a number of black players filed a civil rights lawsuit over the practice. And just this past week, the NFL has agreed to halt this race norming. 
it was interesting to me because a few weeks ago I brought to the pod this idea of race in algorithms around maternity choices. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that in a few minutes. In fact, what the NFL says about this particular thing is that these norms were supposed to prevent racial bias in medicine. But in fact, you know how it goes, right? Like it didn't, it had the opposite effect. But again, it just goes to show how race plays out in these algorithms um, and decision-making processes in medicine. The other thing that was really interesting to me about this is the fact that how this came to be was because a bunch of NFL wives were like, we're not having this, black NFL wives. There's a quote in the article which says, if it wasn't for the wives who were infuriated by all of the red tape involved, it would never have come to be. And so shout out to the wives who are holding it down for their husbands who became advocates and who dropped 50,000 signed petitions on the court to not just let this issue go quietly into the night, but to allow these players their due from the NFL. I love this. I also loved, I loved that it was the wives who were like, y'all, this don't make sense. The only thing I'll say here, because I know that Sam and DR are going to say brilliant things, so I'll leave the brilliance to them. I will just say, I'm reminded that the systems require so many separate parties to do the harm. Like, it's not enough for the front office to make the thing. Somebody has to, like, process the papers. The doctors have to agree. Like, so many layers of people within the NFL have to see this and participate in this over time for it to be a thing, yet still it persists. I mean, that is, it's like what I always go back to with the police. The police alone can't do this. They can't do it alone. It takes like a whole system of people to allow and enable it. And that's what I think about this. There is no way you are coding the black people cognitively less and nobody knows about it. It's just not, that's not true. Like that is not true. And it is wild that it took the wives to be the people to expose this. I think the only thing now that I'll add is that the humanizing of these stories too. I mean, having early onset dementia, having long-term cognitive issues, like these are things that are, I'm sure, impacting these men's lives and their interaction with their families. And partly, I'm sure, why their wives became advocates is because it's probably for some of them a full-time job caring for their husbands and their health issues. I think that's what gets lost in a lot of this is that, you know, these guys are all, they're all jacked up um, and and need a lot of long-term care earlier in their lives than, than they would have expected, but for football. So I think that's the sad part to all this is like actually like so many of these families having to live with these, with these injuries. The only thing I'll I'll add is, you know, this is scientific racism, right? Like this is all the way back in the 1920s type stuff that you read in the history books, right? This is like comparing people's skulls and like, this is like that kind of dark history is like here and it's still happening in all of these ways that, you know, it takes people to discover, like to point out, to call out, to DeRay's point, like a lot of people were in on this. This was the way things were done. This was the methodology. And like a lot of people agreed on that methodology, used that methodology. 
And it is racist, right? It is like baking in um, these aspects that result in, in folks being denied the level of care that they need. And not only sort of in sports, we're talking about, I mean, you know, we could talk about this with the next news, but in a range of life or death decisions, this is how the decisions are getting made using these methodologies that are just so fundamentally and obviously like apparently racist. Like not even, like when we talk about risk assessments and the algorithms there, like they do some work to make it look non-racist. They're talking about, you know, do you know somebody who went to jail? Do you live in a, a zip code in which there aren't any grocery stores? Like, like they're trying to go a little bit more indirect, but I mean, even the explicitly racist measures are still like being used. So I think it's wild. Um, and I just, you know, this is sports. We talk about it in healthcare, policing, this happens as well. And so, you know, risk assessments, and there are so many different spaces, some more harmful to people's like life and death decisions and lives than others. But um, just the scope and scale of this and the number of people who are in on it is sort of mind boggling. I'll just say one more thing, and that is that the good news is they're not just looking at this prospectively, but they're going to go back and look at it retrospectively. So all of these fellas who had put in claims and were denied, they can at least be reviewed, and maybe they stand a chance of getting some of the money that is likely owed to them. My news is about race correction in uh, medicine. So Kai brought this a while, like a couple weeks ago, because... She was put onto it by a TV show, which apparently is great, uh, that I'm not seeing yet. And then I saw this and it was like, uh, so let me just say what the news is. The news is that uh, black women have complained for a long time that even when they want to have a vaginal birth, they are directed to have a C-section over and over. And people have repeatedly said, like, they don't know, like, why can't they have a vaginal birth? They want to have a vaginal birth, can't do it. Uh, what people discovered is that there's actually a formula that essentially says that black women and Hispanic women are should not have them. They are not recommended to have them as often as white women are. That's the way the, the numbers work out. After a C-section. So if you've had a C-section, then your next birth would need to be a C-section, whereas otherwise, for other women, they can actually have a vaginal birth after a C-section. Boom. And what the news reports today is that they are working on a formula to get rid of uh, having race be the factor. So they talk in the article, they talk through uh, that there were some doctors who didn't know how to get around it. So they would just put no anyway. They would just like not use race and just say that essentially say that people are white in the coding. But there's a new formula that's been developed uh, that will not use race as one of the factors. What I also didn't know is that I, I did not realize that when these formulas were put in place, they weren't necessarily put in place in the effort to be predictive, but this is what happens. You give people a guide and they start using it, right? Which makes sense. Like they, you make this thing, people start using it. And then it's like, everybody uses it. And you're like, Ooh, that's sort of not a good thing. But the takeaway from this for me was really that we can undo all the harm. We can do it. That like this formula has been around forever. It's been the way it's been done for a long time. And still we can get committees of people together and try something new. And I say this because when we address systemic racism, people so often are sort of like, well, it's systemic. It's here. Been around for a long time, baked into the fabric. And they say that as if we can't do something else. And this is just a good example of like, now there's a whole lot of other race correction formulas we need to undo. So we talked about kidney stones on here. We talked about a whole host of other things. 
but this was just like a good proof point that like it is possible to undo the racism. That is possible. While it is possible, I think the article goes out of the way to make the point that it's not just a matter of changing the formula because this is socialized into how people do their work. And so even when you Google the formula right now, the old piece comes back up and not the new piece. So there's going to require a lot of training and unlearning for people in order to take this new tool and use it effectively. And so I think kudos to these folks who have taken the first step of developing a new, uh, a new calculator. However, it's going to take a lot of additional work in order to get this into the day-to-day practice of medicine. I'm really into Michelle Morse, who in 2021 was named the first chief medical officer for New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. So big up to Sister Michelle. Looks like she's doing big things. Looks like she started her career at Partners in Health in Haiti. I don't know. I'm just, I'm becoming obsessed with her as I'm reading about it. So I think um, everyone said all the, the smart things to say, but I just wanted to, to raise her up and to get a little bit more familiar with her. So the only thing that I'll add is, you know, the how of how do we not only remove uh, race as a, as a factor being, being used in this, but how do we actually make sure that it's, uh, that the tool works accurately, um, and that it's not sort of substituting race for another variable that is essentially race, but, but, uh, a proxy. Um, and it sounds like that work is still underway uh, and that there have been analyses that affirm that the tool performs with the same level of accuracy without uh, race being an explicit variable uh, and that they actually added a new variable, which is whether or not the patient has been treated for chronic hypertension um, as they remove the, the race variable. So you know, it has yet to be independently evaluated um, so the work is ongoing, and, and this is sort of familiar with the space in general, where I think, um, you know, especially in this context of algorithms um, and risk assessments in criminal justice, there's this acknowledgement that the existing structures produce these biased outcomes, and then like the how do we create a, a system that is not acting in racist ways, that is not discriminating against black people uh, compared to white people. And like that is where so much of the work necessarily has to happen and is difficult because oftentimes what happens is they end up substituting an explicitly sort of race variable with a sort of proxy for race that ends up resulting in very similar outcomes. So um, so I'm always interested in, in understanding sort of what are the variables they end up choosing? How do they change these variables? And how does that affect the actual outcomes in the end? Um, because I think we've seen a lot of uh, folks say that they have non-racist algorithms, and then you end up looking at the results, and the results look racist every time. Sam, I'm actually interested in that. Can you Do you have an example of a place where they moved race out and then and then what they put in was a proxy that was just as bad as the last thing? So I think there are a couple of, of ways in which, you know, when you remove uh, either race or sometimes there are other indicators as well. So remember when we talked on the pod around uh, the ban the box, right? So when there's the question around whether or not you've had a previous criminal record and the idea was, okay, like that's often a proxy for race. People are going to use that, that question to deny people, especially black people, um, you know, the ability to be hired. And so they removed the box and then the actual disparities got worse, um, because they removed the box. So, so I think that's where, you know, in looking at the outcomes, how do we make sure that like the outcomes are changing in the right direction, even if the intentions are good with removing the question, um, it doesn't always deliver the results. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, a historian and the author of several books, including the new one, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. We discuss racial hierarchies, inequality, white terrorism, and just a startling amount of buried history that is thankfully coming to light. Let's go. Professor Hinton, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me, Dre. So I didn't even know this book was coming out. And then I saw it and I was like, whoa, this is, uh, this is a book I wish I had read in 2014. Um, <laughs> but it is here now, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence. Mm-hmm. I have a ton of questions to ask, uh, but I met you forever ago, it feels like, on a panel or something. I, we definitely met at like an event. Yeah. I was intrigued by your research then. And now it's like, whoa, this book. So can you talk to us, start us off with like, how did you get to be a professor? Like, what was the pathway to being in the academy? Uh, what did you study before you studied this? And then how did you mm-hmm. get to this history of police violence? For most of my childhood and even into my teenage years, I really wanted to be a criminal defense attorney in part because you know, I came of age as mass incarceration was really kicking off and the crack epidemic and seeing how that played out within my family, but also seeing how the justice system and recognizing how the justice system as a young child was racist and really effed up when it came to people of color and black people. And so that made me want to defend people and prevent people from going to prison under these crazy long sentences. Many people who needed drug treatment and not people who needed to get locked up like my cousin. So in some ways, you know, my interest and in, in this work, my book is, 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 is me doing some of that work on my own terms. As an undergraduate, I went to NYU and took classes with Robin D.G. Kelly, who is just one of the most inspiring and powerful thinkers alive. And he made me want to write like him and he made me want to be a historian And to think about the ways in which the past can be a guide for us as we envision a more equitable and just present and future. So for a long time, especially in graduate school, I really struggled with, you know, what it meant to be in the academy and be a professor and be doing this research and be in many ways, you know, by the nature of the job, 
disconnected to a certain degree from many of the struggles on the ground. And I realized that, you know, this research and that intellectuals have really important roles to play in social movements. And so this is my skill set. You know, I love going in archives, whether they're organizational archives or they're federal archives or the archives I use for America on Fire, which was based largely on um, a newspaper accounts and doing oral histories. And that's really exciting to me. And it's a skill that I have and hopefully a contribution that I can make in the struggle for our liberation. Now, with this book, I have a million questions, but can you just frame what your goal was when you set out to write this book, The Untold History of Police Violence, and then and then I'll ask my questions. There are a number of goals. I mean, I think one of them, and, and I have been doing the research since I finished up my first book because I kept on seeing over the course of my research for the first book, which is the history of federal crime control policy from the Kennedy administration to the Reagan administration, that there was continued community rebellion into the 70s at a time when many people, you know, thought that, <laughs> that this form of protest had ended. And so this kind of troubled me as, you know, the events of 2020 unfolded in particular, it became really clear that this was a history that we needed. I think many of us forget that the police violence that the nation has been witness to since Ferguson in 2014 and through Obama's second term and beyond has a much, much longer history, that this has been going on, that these struggles for justice and an end to police violence and full civic inclusion has been a centuries, decades-long struggle that, that we haven't really recognized. And the response to that in the form of um, continued police occupations and police violence also has a much longer history. So it's not as if you know, this began when everybody has cameras on their, in, in their pockets on their cell phones. And so I wanted to kind of highlight this longer history of struggle and protest against um, many of the same dynamics that those in the streets uh, in, during the summer of 2020 and today are protesting against. Um, I also wanted to push back on the language that we use and the uh, repressive responses to what I hope all of us will begin to really reckon with as a form of political violence, and that is the rebellions. You know, from Harlem in 64, which is kind of the first incident of mass collective violence um, in response to a police killing, the New York Police Department killed a 15-year-old black high school student, and this kind of led to the first major eruption, one of hundreds through every summer of Johnson's presidency, you know, Johnson said, even though the Harlem Rebellion was rooted in the same socioeconomic demands of the civil rights movement for an end to police violence and for jobs and for decent housing and for uh, expanded educational opportunities, Johnson said, you know, this protest, this violence has nothing to do with civil rights. It's crime. It's criminal. It's linked to juvenile delinquency. And in responding to the political violence as such and calling these incidents riots, it continues to perpetuate the cycle of police violence and rebellion because, you know, instead of investing in the resources that people need, the resource that gets propped up time and time again are policing and surveillance and incarceration. And so much of this story has leads us to the mass incarceration society that the United States is today and the continued 
killings and violence inflicted by police forces against communities of color throughout the United States. One of the things that you do, you know, in a way that comes off effortlessly in the book that I'm sure took forever was you just, you find so many stories, right? Like one of the things as an activist that is hard is that people are always like this isolated incident. They're like, you know, well, my community is not Ferguson and this is not Baltimore and this is not Louisville, right? And one of the things that you do that is that was shocking to me, and this is like the work I do every day, is that you weave together this historical tale that is true that reminds us that this has been happening for a long time. How did you find these stories? Like, you know, I think about Peoria. I think about, you know, you talk about um, Cairo. You talk about, like, the housing project. It's like all these communities that I just remember now from reading the book. How did you find those stories? And, pro- and maybe it wasn't even hard to find. Somebody just had to go looking. I don't know. So it was actually luck and happenstance. So, you know, I mentioned that over the course of researching my first book, I came across some of these stories in the national press. Um, And then I was at a barbecue at a friend's house and was introduced to this political scientist at the University of Michigan named Christian Davenport, who's amazing. Everybody should look up his work. He runs the Radical Information Project at U of M. And he happened to have the in his possession the archives of the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence, which was formed after the assassination of John F. Kennedy and basically sought to collect local newspaper clippings of every incident of all kinds of violence that were rocking American cities, big and small and tiny um, throughout the United States, and not just black rebellions, but also anti-war protests and labor disputes and student movements. And this archive, unfortunately, parts of it were housed at Brandeis, where the Lemberg Center did its work at Brandeis University. But the newspaper clipping portion of it had essentially been like passed around among a group of political science professors and Christian Davenport happened to have it. I met him and he said, Hey, you know, would you want to, he was getting ready to do a retrospective on the um, Detroit rebellion of 67. It was, uh, you know, coming up to the 50 year anniversary. We started talking about, you know, these at the time, what I was calling like small scale or mini rebellions. And he said, you know, I have this archive, come take a look. So when I got to his office at the university of Michigan, you know, it was just a treasure trove of dusty newspaper articles that nobody had put together before because they're not like these things weren't covered in the New York times. They were covered by the local press. And so, you know, I was able to not only really grapple with the extent of this political violence in a way that I think none of us saw before. I mean, one of the big surprises is, and this is even a kind of misguided assumption that I went into my first book with, which is that, you know, the, the urban violence, urban rebellions peak with the, um, the 130-some that followed the assassination of Martin Luther King. But what this archive shows is that actually the peak of, of, of urban rebellion came after the official launch of the war on crime with the Safe Streets Act of 1968, which basically invested in local police departments and not just in big cities, but in rural towns and mid-sized cities across the United States, expanded police forces, and equipped officers with military-grade surplus weapons from Vietnam and uh, interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean. So like helicopters that are a ubiquitous part of policing today and armored tanks and M4 carbine rifles and all these things. And residents responded to this new policing encroaching in their communities by fighting back. And that's what this archive really showed. One of the really exciting things in the book for me is uh, at the end of the book, a 25 page timeline of black rebellions that I was able to put together with Christian's help. And this 
you know, gave me an opportunity to really lay out the data so people can see just how frequently and how vast these protests were. And I bet that for many, if not most readers, they're going to be able to find their hometown there or they're going to be able to find a city that they lived there. And like you said, DeRay, you can't distance yourself from this. This form of protest and this police violence and the the oppression that led to it is woven deeply within the fabric of American society. And, you know, we still have not addressed the root causes that lead to these conditions and that lead to the, the forms of political violence that people feel like they must take when they have no other option. Now, one of the things that I want to ask you, too, is what did you learn about organizing in this moment that like throughout all of these stories there is you, you know the book highlights the rebellion and that means that people pushed uh, what did you learn about those people that's a really great question I mean I, I think for one the book really made me grapple with the relationship between nonviolent direct action protests and violent rebellion and how both have been so integral to the black freedom struggle historically you know, in so many of and nearly all of the cities where rebellions occurred, the throwing of rocks at police, the burning, um, the looting in some cases did not just pop up out of nowhere. It came after decades of nonviolent direct action, but also lawsuits and petitioning local elected officials and going down to city hall that had not worked to fundamentally change conditions. And it also raised questions for me about new questions and difficult questions about what some of the shortcomings of the civil rights movement are. And it's unfortunate that historically it has taken these forms of violent protest for policymakers and for communities to begin to recognize and attempt to reckon with the larger socioeconomic conditions that lead to them in the first place. So I think, you know, the movement for, Black lives and attention to issues of police brutality, the wreckage of mass incarceration in this country and racial inequality in general, that conversation has been revived and renewed, I think, you know, from Ferguson onward. But it really took what we saw last summer with, you know, a renewed spate of violent protests for people to begin to listen in new ways, for systemic racism, for instance, to become a buzzword for some people to begin to think about how we might finally address the root causes of socioeconomic and racial inequality and begin to think about how we might dismantle the racial hierarchies that have structured the United States historically. So one of the, the big things is just wrestling with the diverse and rich forms of protest that have been so integral to the black freedom struggle. And that's not always the nonviolent marches. And those nonviolent marches too, and the peace vigils can quickly turn violent when they are responded to with tear gas and with police beating people with batons and with force instead of actual meaningful concrete change. Boom. Yeah. One of the things that it reminded me of, you know, I think about, uh, obviously I was in the street in Ferguson and we were in the street for 100 days. 
is that the retelling of this story has always been this really odd idea that like national groups came and like told people to come outside their houses and da, da, da. and like that's just not what happened right right like people came outside because their neighborhood was on fire right, right? and like the police were terrorizing them but when i read your book it was a reminder that this is always what happens is that, like the police do something heinous and people are like I'm tired of it. Right. And it, it's not like the NAACP in every community being like, hello, be tired today. It's like people are like, we're not doing this, you know? That's the other narrative that the white establishment in particular likes to tell and told about the rebellions of the late 60s and early 70s that like, well, these are outside agitators. You know, this isn't really, this isn't what the community wants. These are, you know, especially in the late 60s, you know, these are communist infiltrators. You know, this isn't actually these demands for for basic human rights and basic needs um, are not coming from the people in the community themselves. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was convinced that somehow Stokely Carmichael was behind the Detroit Rebellion of 67. And we see that playing out again and again in terms of, as you say, how people retell, falsely retell uh, what happened in Ferguson and other cities. Now, this is going to be a hard question only because this is your book. (laughs) But there were so many stories that blew my mind. Like the Black Sniper. I'm yeah. like, I know nothing about the Black Sniper. I'm like, okay, Black Sniper, here we go. The boogeyman of the Black Sniper. Of the stories that you put in the book that you were like, this even surprised me. And you walked into this thinking it was going to be wild. Wow, that's a great question. And like you said, such a difficult one because, I mean, there are so many stories too in the archives. I mean, thousands of other stories. There are 2,000 rebellions between May 68 and 1972, and I only got to include like a half a percentage point of them in the book. So two thousand, Professor Hidden. Yes, 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 two thousand. We've been tired for a long time, right? And in total, like two thousand four hundred between '64 and '72. So this was not, you know, these rebellions were not just Watts in Harlem and Newark and DC. And they were everywhere. So it was really hard to choose. And, and in, in the book, I wanted to amplify, you know, not the familiar Watson Newark stories, but the stories of the smaller towns. And so I think the one that, that haunted me the most was what happened in Cairo, Illinois, um, which was actually the most kind of protracted rebellion in U.S. history. It lasted essentially from 69 to 72. And this was a, a town in like the southernmost tip of Illinois, And basically, white vigilantes and the police department were completely intertwined and in cahoots and terrorized the black community of Carroll, which were just under a majority of the residents there, and most of whom lived in a segregated housing project in the city. The the story of Carroll and the ways in which black residents organized and built community cooperatives on their own and boycotted white stores because they said, you know, these white vigilantes are shooting into our housing project every night and we're not going to keep patronizing their stores so they can buy bullets to shoot at us. Vigilantes like sicking German shepherds on young black children as they went to school. This was happening in the 70s. And to me, this story felt like, you know, what, what one would expect in the 1950s, you know, in the deep, deep Jim Crow South. And this is a struggle that happened in a, in a border area, in a rural area into the 1970s and um, is an example of the ways in which it, it almost foreshadows, you know, in the sense that Cairo is a small town, but it shows what the ultimate impact of racism can be, which is that, you know, instead of actually giving black people in Cairo equal rights, the white establishment clung to 
their supremacy, denied them those rights, and in the process completely destroyed the economic vitality of an already struggling town. They chose to hang on to their whiteness, and they chose to terrorize black residents and deny them fundamental rights, political access, and any sort of economic gains in order to hang on to their supremacy. And I think in, in some ways, you know, this haunting story is a warning to us all, but it was deeply difficult to write about. And as I said, just haunting to learn about just the extent to which white terrorism would go and the harm that other people would inflict on their fellow citizens and residents. It's surprising, not surprising. That story stuck out to me too. And I think about the, you know, there's obviously a chapter called The Snipers, which is obvious to you and me because we read the book. Uh, but not obvious to our listeners. There's a whole chapter called The Snipers, but this the image of the black sniper and the way you help us understand the threat of the police being killed as being the dominating factor in the numbers. You know, all I can think about when reading this yeah. about how people played up that is that we we don't have great historical numbers of how many people the police killed. So yeah. the police could say anything about the number of police killed and it always seems wild where I'm sure, I mean, we know how many people the police killed today, but roughly but i'm sure it was wild back then and that those numbers were just like like all people saw was the rebellion they there was not even a a real way to quantify because the government certainly wasn't collecting that information right Uh, but it reminded me of just like the incredible power of the police to fear monger and how that fear actually leads to public policy yes exactly and and unfortunately and I, i think you know some historians are beginning to think about how we might recover this information but We'll never know. Well, we'll never know the extent of police violence and police killings today, um, because still, you know, things are underreported and things get classified as differently than they actually occur by law enforcement authorities. But it's going to be really, really hard for us to get a full sense of just how pervasive police killings were during this period. The, the image of the black sniper, again, similar to the outside agitator idea, is just kind of this myth. Um, rooted in, you know, a, a Vietnam era context that instills fear that somehow, you know, police going into these communities are going to be shot at by people who intend to kill them. And there were shootings during the rebellions, but very few police officers were killed during these shootings. If anything, you know, the gunshots that did go off were meant to assert people's dignity and self-defense and intimidate people not to actually kill them. Um, but yet, you know, the, the, the sniper and, you know, I write about this in the book, but it was a figure that the media itself helped to create and helped to perpetuate, even though many accounts of sniping were fabricated, ends up becoming a really important, as you say, Dre, element of these policy arguments for more police, more penetration and for uh, gun control in uh, targeted black urban communities. You know, these questions about the Second Amendment um, have never really extended to black people. So black people in, you know, in in the United States don't enjoy the same kind of Second Amendment privileges and rights as other people do. The response to this image of the sniper, I think, is, is also a part of that, that long history. What did you learn about the commission? So there's a whole chapter on commissions, and it seems like they sort of pop up, they say some things. Things aren't really implemented. They pop up again. They say some things. Things are really implemented. That is what I got. Did you get something different? No. I mean, the, what I learned about the commissions is, you know, we don't, we certainly don't need another commission. In, in, in many ways, so, of course, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders or the Kerner Commission, which Johnson 
formed during the 67 Detroit Rebellion and released this like mass market best-selling paperback in 68, basically, you know, saying that calling out white, white racism and saying that if the United States wants to prevent rebellions, riots, of course, is what the Kerner Commission used, um, from happening in the future, what's needed is essentially like a Marshall Plan for American cities. What's needed is a massive infusion of resources into black communities. And of course, that doesn't happen. The only recommendations of the Kerner Commission that get taken up are the, the, the elements of the report that call for more heavy-handed policing to accompany this massive infusion of resources. And we see this at the local level playing out again and again. It just becomes this like ceremony, like a rebellion happens, and then the mostly white liberal commission run by the state or the city comes to investigate, and they discover all of the socioeconomic root causes of the political violence and they recommend more police community relations and better training for officers, and their recommendations never get implemented. And I think one of the things that's just so infuriating to me is that to read all of these commission reports at the state and local level, you know, back to back against each other, and to say, wow, back then, 50 years ago, there was a different proposal for a different approach in place that could have been embraced. But ultimately, time and time again, the response is more policing, more surveillance, more incarceration instead of more jobs, decent housing, better schools. And these are the things that the commission's called for. So the commission's underscore that we know what we need to do. It's just that it hasn't been done. And it's been consistent. There's been a consistent resistance to actually making the structural transformations it's going to take to address the pervasive inequality in the United States and, and systemic racism. So in some ways, it's not even like the commission is bad as much as like, you know, why have a commission if you're not going to do what they say anyway, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the commission, so, so not to just, not to entirely romanticize the commissions. I mean, the commissions, I argue, and the Kerner Commission was guilty of this too. I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, many of the reports of the commissions put forward are really like pathological view of black people where they say, you know, okay, they, they recognize it much in the same way as Daniel Patrick Moynihan in his 1965 report on the Negro family. There are all these socioeconomic elements involved in explaining how we get conditions of poverty and inequality in segregated black communities. But with the, you know, in, in the language of the commissions, you know, the black youth who participated in the rebellion suffered from a kind of alienation where they take, and this is again the commission's idea and language. But any um, encounters with police officers or white institutions that they experience as discriminatory as somehow like overblown into a racist moment and then rebel. I mean, I think it, it's, this, it's this much longer problem in U.S. history where I think white people think that like racism is in black people's own imagination um, and that it doesn't really exist or that it's somehow black people are, are too sensitive. One might say they're overblown. These pathological ideas about black people are very much kind of within um, the realm of the commission recommendations, but these commissions are still offering a path forward beyond the police that consistently was never taken up. So in a lot of ways, they're a missed opportunity, and one wonders if some of the, the kind of larger structural transformations that they suggested had been taken up, where we then might have been going into the 80s or where we might be today. Um, in terms of inequality and systemic racism. Well, we continue your friend of the pod. Uh, everybody, you must read this book. It'll help provide a context for the current situation 
Um, get it today and we will see you back with your next book. Thank you so much, Dre. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.